Guys, we're so glad you're here. Uh, if we've not met yet, my name is JP, and uh, it is an honor uh, to be able to be here together with you. Um, honestly, the opportunity for us to be able to start off our Sunday with, uh, with songs, with uh, scripture from Romans 8, which is uh, my favorite chapter of the Bible. Um, the opportunity to hear stories from Ricky and, and be able to hear from Ben and just being able to hear how lives have been changed. And, and it's such a blessing to be able to hear these things and to be together. So what I want to do is be able to kind of give those of us um, that have been with us during our, this is our, the Signs of Generosity series. And as we've been kind of going in the midst of this series, I want to kind of give us either a refresher if you've been with us this whole time, or if this is your first time here and you've not been here uh, in a while, we haven't heard the series, I want to kind of do a recap so that we're all kind of on the same page when we start up um, with the, uh, the message. So with that being said, um, we're in the Signs of Generosity series, and kind of the tagline for this is the idea of calculating the cost of trusting God with our money. What does it look like to calculate the cost of trusting God with our money? And, and in some senses, what does it mean to calculate the cost of not trusting God with our money and how that can impact us in a negative way? But as we've been doing that, we've been using the five different mathematical signs to kind of talk about the signs of generosity. And so I want to take a moment to recap. So the first one you see there is the equal sign. And so the first week, uh, two weeks ago, when we opened the series, we talked about the idea that you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. That we can't look to money and expect that to be our treasure here on earth to provide true treasure for us up in heaven. Instead, we're supposed to store up our treasures in heaven, not here on earth where thieves can steal, where moth can destroy. But instead, this idea that we look to money, many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us look to money as an opportunity for us to experience future security. That we put money away and we feel like as long as our bank accounts are, are at a safe number, uh, that we are secure, that we have been provided for. But we recognize that we need to trust less in our bank statements and then more bank on the statement that God is faithful and will provide. So we look at the idea that maybe money can potentially help us provide for future security, but only through the poverty of Jesus Christ who made himself poor so that we might become rich, as 2 Corinthians 8 9 says. Only through the poverty of Christ can we experience true riches, which is true eternal security in relationship with him. So money and God, you can't serve both. They are not equals. Now, last week we talked about this idea of using the plus sign that because everything is owned by God, we must add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. And this idea of add, what we looked at there is this three things. The first step is that we need to accept responsibility. We looked at the parable of the talents and recognized that the, the man, who rep, the owner who represents God in this parable, he gave his wealth to the servant. So whose wealth was it? It was God's wealth. And so he gave because everything is owned by God. But then they had to accept the responsibility of what it was that they had received. The, the D stands for the idea that they had to demonstrate accountability. They had to go before the owner and say, this is what I've done with what you've given. For some that went really well and some that didn't. And then we look at the final D is the idea of delighting in God's reward. Recognizing that when we are able to accept the responsibility of what we've been given, when we are able to demonstrate accountability for that which we've been given, and we give it back to God, we can hear what Matthew 25, 21 says when we close our eyes and we hope and we pray that we hear these words when we end our lives. And it says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come and enjoy, come and share in the master's happiness. So recognizing that in the beginning, we, could not we can't serve both God and money. They're not equals. And then because everything has been owned by God, we must add 
stewardship mindsets, everything loaned by God. Now this morning, we're going to dive into the division sign, what that looks like for us, and how God asks us to divide our money. But before we dive into that, will you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into the scriptures together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that you are here in this place, Lord. We, we praise you for being able to hear stories of how you worked uh, in the lives of our, our middle school and high school students at Hume Lake. We, we praise you for um, all that you've done through uh, the ministry here at the church and uh, just the exciting season that we're in as we've um, been able to just continue to see you work in this church in incredible ways, a very generous church, and we're thankful for that. Lord, I pray that as we open up the scripture, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in an incredible way, that your loving voice would speak in a way that is encouraging and convicting in some senses, but also that we would recognize that our love, your love for us rather, is not based on how much we give to you as a percentage, but it's based on the fact that Jesus gave his all for us. So Lord, may we receive that gift and then we give back out of that bounty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we talked about, we're in this series of uh, Signs of Generosity, talking about division. And so for me, I want to share, uh, when we started the worship series, I kind of shared a little bit of my misunderstanding, my misconception with what worship was. I thought it was just those four or five songs at the beginning of a service. Um, and as we talked about in our worship series called It Starts Here, we talked about the idea that, you know, the call to worship isn't just lifting up our voices. It's laying down our lives. And so recognizing that it's not all about just singing, that there's more to it. But I had a misconception growing up uh, when I started attending church. So now I want to share a little bit of my misconception of what offering and tithes were when I first became a Christian. And so when I first became a Christian, really pursuing God in my life, um, I was attending uh, UC San Diego here in La Jolla, and my friends and I would drive out to the Rock Church. At the time, I was meeting at Montezuma Hall at San Diego State. And so uh, I remember there were days in which the offering basket would come or the bucket or the plate, whatever it may be. And as it was being passed around, I remember that there were days when I would just pull out my wallet and I would open it up and whatever was in there, I would give. Now to some of you, that may sound really holy, but sometimes it was 87 cents in a paper clip. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like I had a lot there because it was broke college kid. But it's one of those where I would just give. And other days it was a lot more. And other days it was a, that was a, it hurt a little bit to give. But with that being said, that, you know, you can look and say, well, that's how I give too. I, I just kind of give with whatever I have in the moment, in my pocket or in my wallet, and that's it. But, but let's be honest, we're not in a cash society in a lot of ways. And so that's a lot less likely to happen unless if you, know, you drop in like a Starbucks gift card, which you know we won't accept, but we'll accept. Um, <laughs> no, but it's one of those where we look at this idea of that's not how we could do it anymore is be able to just give whatever it is in our heart, whatever is in our pockets at the time. And here's an example of it. My wife and I, um, could you imagine, I love my wife, um, I'm, you can imagine that because it's true. Um, can you imagine, I love my wife, and it's one of those things where if I were to only give her a gift out of whatever was just in my pocket at the time without any intentionality or thought, would that show honor and love to her? If I were to show up on her anniversary like, babe, happy anniversary, I wrote you a post-it, and I put it there, and I love you, because that was what was convenient or easy for me, would that illustrate the love I have for my wife? No, likely not, right? And she would let me know, rightfully so. But let me, let me contrast that for a second. So think about that. The one that we love most, the people that we love most, if we were to give them a gift, and if it was something that was not well thought out, is that something that really shows love to them? Because the contrast of that is, I remember uh, for Valentine's Day several years ago, 
I ended up trying to surprise her. And so we, I said, hey, we're going to go be gone for a couple nights. Um, I just want you to be able to you know, pack your bags. Uh, you know, you'll need a nice outfit. But besides that, we're going to go on a trip. And so we left LA County, started going north on the 15. And then once you hit Barstow, it's really hard to convince her that we're not going to Las Vegas. Like It's like, oh, look, we're just going to possibly go to the Baker. It has the world's largest thermometer, did you know? And it's like, there's not, there's not a lot of surprise there. But still, we ended up going there. She didn't know what we were going to do. We ended up staying at the Venetian. And I had booked us to have uh, dinner in the Venetian on Valentine's night, and then right afterwards be able to go to see uh, the Phantom of the Opera. Because if you've been to the Venetian, they have the Phantom of the Operas. Uh, at the time, was a stage, a, a musical that was specifically designed for that theater. And so there was a surprise. And it's this idea of, I got to experience the joy of like planning it out intentionally, not telling her about it, letting her experience a surprise. And she got to experience the joy of being surprised and, and recognizing that out of the intentionality that revealed the love that we ha- I had for her. So for us, when we think about even ties and offerings, when I would open up my wall and say, here, here's 87 cents in a paperclip, or days when it was like $65, $70, which was a lot at the time, it's either way, it's this idea of like, I didn't really show intentionality in my love to God. It was more this idea that the greater the intimacy we have with someone, the more intentionality that we would have when we want to give them something that shows their value. The greater the intimacy we have with someone, the greater the intentionality with which we want to give a gift to them. And so if we're to play that out and extrapolate that, that makes sense when it comes to husband and wife, but, or maybe with your kids, or maybe with your parents, or maybe your best friend, or coworker, roommate, whatever it may be. That may make sense there, but what does it look like when you extrapolate that, when you pull that back to talking about a relationship with God? Now, uh, Mike Bourne, uh, chairman of the Board of Elders, he gave me fear, full uh, permission to share this story. Um, so he's not here, but he knows it's coming at some point. He had shared this idea of this idea of just giving kind of whatever it is, is an idea that's kind of common and a misconception. He shared that when he was 10 or 11 years old, he remembers going to church and, and they passed out the offering basket um, before the sermon, before all that. And he remembered looking around and being really confused. And he shared the reason that he was confused because he looked around and said, well, how do you know what to give? Because how do you know if it's a good sermon yet? (laughs) This idea that we think it's based off of how well the sermon is in order to give back. Like, oh, you know what? Good job, Jesus. I'm going to give you a tip today. And we just toss it in there. (laughs) Or... I don't like that sermon. I'm keeping my 87 cents to myself, right? Like it's, we look at this idea, but that's not what giving is. And in fact, you're going to notice that's coming soon. We're not going to have offering take it up afterwards because it's not contingent on how well the message is or how good the message is or how well received it is. It's contingent on the intentionality of giving to one to whom we are most intimate. But as we look at that idea, we see the fact that, you know, I had friends who someone would walk up to them and give them uh, a couple hundred dollars after they preached a sermon. He's like, what is this for? He's like, oh, that was a great sermon. And he's like, that is not what this is. So he took the money and he donated it to the church because it wasn't for him. But that can be a misconception we have, that either we just give half-heartedly without intention, or we give a tip to Jesus because he had a good sermon and it, and it met me today where I was. But neither of those in, encapsulate the full idea of giving to God. So our main point this morning is going to rhyme. Try not to laugh at the rhyme. Um, but it's going to basically embody, this rhyme embodies what Malachi 3, 6 through 12 says, which is our scripture in a moment. So it says this, by dividing our best from the rest, by dividing our best from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. By dividing 
our best from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. It's a lot of words there, a lot of rhyming there, but we're going to dive into that. And and through the scripture, we're going to see how that is a truth that you and I can base our lives off of. So turn to Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. And if you're in the church Bible, that means you're on page 1494, 1494. If you are having your own Bible, awesome. If you have your phone app that you're using, awesome. Um, Again, we're going to be in Malachi 3, verse 6 through 12. And as you're turning there, we're going to just take that first part of the main point, and we're going to spend some good quality time in there. This idea of dividing our best from the rest. So on your notes, dividing our best from the rest. What does that look like? And why is what that looks like? Why is that important to our relationship with God? Malachi 3, starting verse 6, we're going to read through part of verse 10. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Can we stop there for a moment? Isn't it a beautiful thing that God is gracious, God is love, God is unconditional love for us, that even when we have been falling short, even when we have knowingly sinned, even when we have struggled, even when we've been far from him, even when we've ran away, his love does not change, and therefore we are not destroyed. That's not even part of the sermon. That's for free, people. So that's one of those where that's an exciting thing for us to remember, that his love for us is faithful. So as 2 Timothy talks about that, even if we've been faithless, he is still faithful for he cannot disown himself. So we continue on. Let's go to verse seven. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then verse eight, will the mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now let's, let's stop there as we kind of look at this point of dividing our best from the rest. Now, just so you get a, a context that in Deuteronomy 28, this whole section where it talks about curses and blessings, part of the curses and blessings are contingent upon whether the people are listening and obeying what God has said to do. And if they obey, then God blesses. If they disobey, then God puts curses upon them. And so we look at that idea that it's through that obedience that God is able to say, you are robbing me because there are things that have been owed to me because of that covenant promise. Because you entered in to a promise to give me a tithe, a tenth of what you own, and because you are not fulfilling that requirement, it is as if you are robbing me. In the same way that if we were to be indebted to someone and we failed to give them payment, it would be as if we're robbing money from them. So that's the context, and we'll dive into more into that later, but I just want to provide the context of that's from which he's able to say that, that God is uh, accusing us, accusing the people of robbing him. So let's just start off with how are we robbing him? Those first four words he says, in tithes and offerings. So let's dive in and define a few terms as we go through the scripture together. So the first term we're going to define is the tithe. So the tithe defined. The tithe Defined. Dave Ramsey, a well-known financial advisor, um, created Financial Peace University, which is a great study that uh, we would encourage you to be a part of coming up in the fall, um, either locally or, or we can help connect you with that. But Financial Peace University would be a great thing. He wrote that and worked on that and, and has a great um, information with finances for Christian perspective. Here's what he says when it comes to giving. He says, the general guideline is that for those of us who are evangelical Christians, our baseline for giving is the tithe which is a tenth of our income off the top before you do anything else given to the local church. 
So what is a tithe? It is a tenth of our income off the top before you do anything else going to the local church. And so we'll dive and we'll unpack those a little bit in a moment. But as you just kind of let that kind of rattle around in your brain a little bit, and as we talk through that, where this comes from of the off the top before you do anything else harkens back to the idea of our first fruits, the idea of giving God the first, the best of what we own, of what we have. So we see this in Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. He's saying, honor God with your wealth. How? By giving of the first. So when we're talking about dividing the best from the rest by putting God to the test and living a life that is blessed, when we divide the best, it means giving him our first, giving him that which is most valuable, giving it to him right away as a sign of our trust that he will give us what we need and provide. It's dividing the best from the rest and in so doing, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. And we'll dive into that. But this idea we see very clearly in the story of Cain and Abel. We see very clearly as Genesis 4 says, verses 2 through 5, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, this is not a quote to take a verse to take out of context to show that God is not a vegetarian. He prefers meat. No, that's not what this is. The idea here is recognizing what Cain gave. In his, he gave some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. Some of them. Maybe the rest that was left over after his family was taken care of or, or whatever it may be. What did Abel give? Abel gave the fat portions, the best portion of his firstborn of the flock. He gave the best. Cain gave the rest. Abel's offering and sacrifice was looked upon positively with blessing from the Lord, with favor. Cain's was not. We want to give God our best, the first fruits right off the top before we do anything else. And so Dave Ramsey talks about this in tithing. He says, tithing is an act of obedience and should be given freely with pure motives. Emphasize that again. It should be given freely with pure motives. In other words, we give without expecting anything in return. And it teaches us to be good stewards. What did we talk about last week? Stewardship. It teaches us to be good stewards of what God has given to us. That we recognize that we don't give and we don't put our tithe into the, the plate here and say, okay, now that I've done this, Lord, you owe me X, Y, and Z. Now that I've done this and I've given, then that means you need to answer the prayer that I want the way I want it when I want it. It's not something that we do in order to win favor with God. And it's not something that we do in order to manipulate him to act in which the way we want him to. Rather, it is a way to freely express our love, to freely express our trust, to freely express the faith that we have that God will provide and that we can test him in that. Tithe, uh, sorry, uh, Dave Ramsey continues on. He says, if you tithe, do it out of love for God, not out of guilt. I want to land on there for a moment. My prayer for you, for our church this weekend, has been that if you don't hear anything else that you hear that when I'm talking about tithes and offerings, it does not come from a place of me placing guilt upon your shoulders. 
It is not something I say out of judgment. It is not something I say out of, you have to do this or else you're never going to know Jesus, or you have to do this, but you can't walk through these doors, or you have to do this, or else you're never going to have a right relationship with God. These are things in which if you tithe, if you give, if you trust God to give 10% off the top before you do anything else to the storehouse, to your local church, then that's something that he does it so that we can learn more about him, that we can trust him. But it, does, it comes out of the love for the response of what he's already done for us. It doesn't come out of guilt of saying, if you don't do this, you don't really love Jesus and he doesn't love you. So that is not what we're saying. Please hear me on that. So that's the tithe defined. A 10% of our income off the top before we do anything else given to the local church. Now let's take a moment to define the offering. So what's the offering defined? Dave Ramsey, again, quotation from him says, anything above the tithe in the scripture is considered an offering. A tithe is off the top before you do anything. Offerings come from surplus. The tithe is before you do anything. Offering comes from surplus. So for me and our family, we sponsor, so we, have, we give our tithes to the church. And then what we do is we sponsor a few uh, missionaries, a few um, Christian ministries that we give as an offering. One of those is, is a girl who is in Kenya, and it's a, it's a child through a child sponsorship program from my previous church that she was born 10 months before Shaylin was. And so when Shaylin was two and we're looking at where we could give, we had an opportunity to give. We thought, how cool would it be to be able to give to a child who's Shaylin's age uh, across the world? And so we did that, and we continue to do that every month. We also sponsor two uh, young ladies who, when they were in high school, they were in our high school ministry. One of them was in our small group, but me and my wife led a small group together. The other one is one that came to the ministry and the mission, uh, the ministry quite often. And so they've done work in India and in Thailand, as well as uh, even in LA County a little bit. And then we also provide uh, a little bit to um, a friend of ours who created a nonprofit to help women who have been uh, in the adult film industry or, or human trafficked to help them find a home so that they can escape. So they can get out of the industry, they can get out of the process, and that way they could find freedom and, and hope in Jesus. And so we have these, these different missionaries, these different areas in which we give as an offering that we, we love doing that. Absolutely. But let me be clear. If our finances end up getting tight and we needed to cut back on things, especially giving, we would cut back on those Christian ministries outside of the local church. We would not cut back on our tithes to the local church. We would cut back on those things outside because those are our offerings. Those are the surplus. Those are above and beyond what we're given. But we wouldn't cut back on our tithe to the local church. That's an automatic, before we do anything else, off the top. And so it doesn't mean that we wouldn't support those causes. It doesn't mean we wouldn't be praying for them. But that's the step that we would take because the tithe is so different than an offering. A tithe is something that we need to recognize what that is, what it isn't, and how that impacts us. So that's the tithe defined, offering defined. The next one is the storehouse defined. The storehouse defined, as we hear in verse 10, when God says, Bring the whole tithe, bring the whole tenth off the top, go before you do anything else, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So we should define what the storehouse is so that there's clarity upon which we're supposed to be giving. So the, the storehouse was the equivalent of the church. What it was was the place in which when the temple sacrifices have to be made, 
People would bring the tenth of their stuff and then put it into the storehouse so that when the time of sacrifice would come, whether it's a grain offering, whether it's providing for the, the widows or the orphans, whether it's providing for the Levites or the priests who weren't getting, uh, weren't getting sufficient job anywhere else, they served by serving the local church, or in this case, serving the temple. The storehouse was the place in which people gave to provide for those people. And so the storehouse is the equivalent of the New Testament idea of church. And we'll dive into another time, not today, because uh, restraints of time, that, you know, are we still called a tithe when it comes to the church? And the New Testament, are we still supposed to give 10%? And, you know, we're not restricted to the Old Testament, are we? And, and to that, all I would say is the idea of, no, we're not restricted to the 10% of the Old Testament. But what I will say is that in the Old Testament, they only knew a portion of the love that God had for us because Jesus had not been sent down yet in order to die for our sins. And he didn't give a tithe of his life as a sacrifice. He gave everything. So as Timothy Keller would put, would we be more likely to give the same amount as people who didn't truly know how much God loved them? Or would we be encouraged to be giving even more as a grace giving that 2 Corinthians 9 talks about? So again, we're, we're not going to land on that. I just wanted to touch on that briefly. So let me go back to the storehouse idea. Let me be um, transparent with you all. I want to I step aside for a moment and I want to be able to, to be really clear about this is that I recognize the tension and the elephant in the room, that I am someone who is living off of the generosity of you. And so there might be some people who are sitting here in, in, in your seats that are thinking, okay, of course you want us to give 10% to the church because you are paid for by the church. That, that there's a tension of thinking, well, of course a preacher is going to want to be able to have more tithe coming into the storehouse, specifically the church, because that's going to pay his check and that's going to be able to increase his salary. But let me be clear. The salary that we receive, Steph and I, we do not take that for granted. We do not take for granted that we live off of the generosity of you, that we live off of the widowed mites, we live off of the tithes and the offerings, the giving of the people of this church. And that is a weight that we don't take lightly, that we don't spend frivolously because we recognize that someone is giving sacrificially in this congregation so that we may be able to put a roof over our heads or clothes or put our daughter through school, whatever that may be. So yes, there could be a tension there of thinking, well, of course the preacher's going to want that. My job isn't to do anything to fill up my coffers. My job is for us to have God's word fill up our hearts. And our goal is not for the church to make more money. Our goal is to utilize money in order for the church to have a greater impact in this world. And so please, please hear me in that. We don't take that same trip up to Las Vegas and think, hey, the church gave their tithes and offerings. Let's just put it all on black and see how it goes. We don't take this lightly. And we are thankful for your generosity, for your giving, so that we can have the opportunity to do this and to be a part of God's kingdom here. So Please hear me in that. It's not something we take lightly. And even as Numbers 18 talks about that, the Levites, the priests at the time, were said, when you receive, God spoke to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tithe of that tithe as the Lord's offering. So even when we receive the tithe, the money from your giving, we still tithe off of that and give to the local church. We give to Pomerano Christian Church. And so, again, we are in the same boat. We are not less than. We are not more than. We are in the same boat as you, but we don't take that giving lightly. So thank you for allowing us to be able to do what God has called us to do. Now, in our life, and me and Steph, uh, we always have given 10% 
to God's kingdom, but since our, since our marriage, but we did not always give a, ten, a full tithe. Why is that? It's because in the time or for a season, we would take our 10% of giving of what that number was, and we would give a percentage of that to the church, another percentage of that to a, minis- a missionary, another percentage of that to a ministry that we believe in, and another percent of, a percentage of that uh, to another good cause. And we would say, okay, that 10% is our tithe unto the Lord. But once we were really taught and really understood the storehouse principle, the idea that we give the whole tithe where to the storehouse, to the place that we worship, that's an example of the equivalent of the church, that the Old Testament storehouse is the equivalent of the church, we, we had to adjust some things and recognize that we were then giving a full tithe to the church. And when and if we have surplus, that's when we gave to those different missionaries or ministries. Because the tithe is something that we give first and foremost to God off the top before we do anything else. Now, for some of us, maybe we're looking at this dynamic of separating our tithe into different things. And, and so Douglas LeBlanc, who wrote, uh, he authored the book Tithing, Test Me in This, says this. How I donate money expresses power. If I carve my tithe into slices of my own liking, I tighten my grip on power and mammon tightens its grip on me. I'm better aware of the ever-deepening joy found in God's generosity when I surrender control of the first 10% to the community that welcomes me, a wretched sinner, week after week and challenges me to become something more. So when you give your tithes or your offerings, when you give money to the church, you know, we take that and our ministries, whether it's big events like VBS or Hume Lake, we just heard about, or whether it's women's uh, retreats, whether it's uh, weekly Bible studies, whether it's being able to make sure there's air conditioning in this room on a Sunday morning, amen, whether there's lights, whether it, it funds the fact that we make sure our parking lot is safe, we make sure our playground is safe, that we are able to staff people that love Jesus and will love your kids downstairs or in the, in the uh, youth ministry. These funds, when you tie to that, that's what allows for the ministry of the church to, to take place. Now, just so you know, when it comes to uh, missions, there's a percentage, a, a substantial percentage that for every tithe, for every money that comes in, there's a percentage that goes towards world missions and the missionaries we support so that it, we always keep in mind being able to reach those who are across the world as well as those who are close by and local. But we recognize that when you give, it's going to fund all those different things. So I know some people might want to say, hey, I want this money specifically to go to a specific ministry. And is that okay? I mean, yeah, that's, that's, it's going to go there. But what we have to realize is that all the money that you go to, or that we're going to give, is going to provide for the various different ministries. So you don't need to be able to put a certain thing in the memo line because it's going to fund that. And it's from that bucket or this bowl that all the other ministries are going to be able to get the funding from. So when you give, we have directors who are stewards and elders and staff that, that know what you're giving and recognize that uh, there's no light weight to that. And then we pray and we try to utilize that money in a, in, a, in a wise way as good stewards in order to see God's kingdom continue to grow through Palmerado Christian Church. And so that's the idea of the storehouse and where it is that we acknowledge the elephant in the room that yes, as a preacher, yes, I get paid to the church. But again, we don't take that lightly and we give back as well. Last part of here of the definitions is the rest defined. So we've looked at the tithe defined, offering defined, storehouse defined, and now the rest defined. And this, I just want to give you an idea about this. If I were to give each and every one of you a million dollars 
every year for the rest of your life, which I won't, but if I were to, is there any, and I asked you that the only requirement for that was that you would give me a gift back once a year, or you'd, give, you'd buy me something of that. Is there any amount of that million dollars that would seem unfair for me to ask for? Because you gotta remember, if I give you a million dollars and I ask for something that's 250,000, that means you still get 750,000 that you wouldn't have received anyways. If I were giving you a million dollars and I asked for half a million, that's still half a million dollars that you wouldn't have received anyways. If I was to say, hey, I want 90% of that, I want $900,000 of that back every single year, and you still had $100,000, that's still $100,000 you wouldn't have had anyways. So I get that when we use large numbers that are unrealistic, that it's over the top, it's easy to kind of say, oh yeah, no, of course there's no amount that I wouldn't give you. But when we come to the nitty-gritty of looking at our finances, at our actual income, at what God has given us to make and to live off of, it's so much harder to say, well, you know, God, you gave me everything. Why? Because everything is owned by God, right? So we need to add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. So out of everything you've given me, he doesn't ask for 25%. He doesn't ask for 50%. He doesn't even ask for 90%. What does he ask for? 10%. He says, out of everything you've given me, or I've given you, give 10% back to your church. Give 10% back. And you can live off of the rest. He, give, he graciously gives us 90% to live off of. And if we were to use a million dollars a year and say, give him 900,000, like, okay, I'll do that. I'll take that deal. So how does that equate? Or how does that mix with how, what we're experiencing with our actual income nowadays? And so many Christian advisors will encourage you to give your 10%, save 10%, and then live off of 80. So if you want to use that analogy or that breakdown as well to divide your money that way, and you want to divide the best for God, and then out of the rest, you use some for later and the majority for now, you can do that. But the crux of the issue is that we're dividing our best, the first fruits, the best of the fat portions of that which we've been given from the, off the top, Before anything else, we're giving 10% of that to the church as a sign of trusting God in that process. So then we look at this, and I'm going to say a phrase that 99.9% of the time you would never want to say, but we're going to say it today, put God to the test. When Jesus is talking to Satan, and and he says, you know, why don't you jump off this cliff, and he'll rescue you lest you dash your foot against a stone which is from Psalm 91, Jesus says, you know, do not put the Lord your God to the test, right? But the one time in scripture when God says, test me in this, it's in our tithes and offerings. It's in exactly the situation which we are talking about this morning. So verse 10 and 11, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. This is the one time where he says, put me to the test. That he, it's almost like he knows that money is going to be one of the hardest things for us to get a hold of, of putting, making sure that we don't serve both money and God because they're not equals. It's almost as if he knows in the Old Testament that that's true, just in the same way that in the New Testament, when we looked at Matthew 6, he said, do not store your treasures up here on earth, but store them up in heaven because you cannot serve both God and money. It's almost as if he knows this is going to be the struggle that a lot of us will face, trusting in the supposed future security of money rather than the eternal security through God. 
And because he does, he says, listen, test me in this. Try me. My previous senior pastor would give the imagery of, of taking off a knight, taking off a glove, and throwing it down as if he's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I dare you to try this. I dare you to, to, to listen to my words, heed my words, and let me test you, or sorry, be, let me be tested by you in giving of tithes and offerings and see how I will respond. He doesn't say, do this, and then you're going to end up in the poorhouse. He says, do this, and look at, will I not open up storehouses of blessing? Now, let me be clear. Am I saying that if you give money that you're going to automatically receive money back? No. The blessing may not manifest itself that way, which we're going to dive into in a moment. But this idea that we put God to the test. And if you remember with us a few weeks ago, we talked about the story of Moses and how in Exodus 3.12, when he recognized that there was a burning bush and God said, go, I'm sending you out to the people and I'm going to go have you go rescue the people. Let my people go from Egypt. And the, po- the proof that I am with you is that at the end of it all, you and the people will be worshiping me on this mountain. Remember how we talked about how the promise that God gives and the sign that he is giving it is often separated by obedience, and in this case, faith, because in that gap between the promise and the sign is where faith lives. It's being sure of what we do not see and certain of what we hope for. It's this acknowledgement that even here, we see it in Exodus 3, and we saw it in the, the culmination of it with Exodus 24 with Moses worshiping God on the mountain with the people. But we see it too when he says in Malachi 3, test me in this. This promise is that I will provide for you. There's obedience that comes next. And then the sign is at the end of it all, you'll be able to see that I provided for you. That's uncomfortable because it means that we have to have faith. But that's what faith is. It's the gap between the promise and the sign embodied by obedience. And so we look at this idea that put God to the test. And the last point here is then you will live a life that is blessed. What does a life that is blessed look like? Malachi 3.12 says, then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. I want you just to take a moment and think about who are some of the people that are so delightful in your life. And maybe for some of you, it's a child who just has that childlike faith, right? Who doesn't worry about all the details. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's someone who's experienced great tragedy. But through that great tragedy, they found the faith to lean into God. And so then through great tragedy on the other end of that, smaller things don't affect them as much. And they have a faith and a trust and a hope that is greater than many of us can even imagine. So when I say you're going to have a blessed life, that does not mean that you give and then you're going to automatically have money overflowing in your bank account. In fact, Ken Shigematsu says it this way. This means that as pilgrims of Christ, if we give generously to God, it may choose, he may, sorry, he may choose to bless us materially, but he may also choose to bless us spiritually instead by giving us a deeper trust in him, a greater sense of contentment, a growing peace while experiencing painful loss, or a unique opportunity to make a spiritual difference in someone's life. And when we trust God, it's not that it's going to be easy. Because faith isn't easy. And a walk with God isn't easy. But he says, test me in this. Because if you would just trust the promise I'm giving you now, and you would trust me with your obedience, and then experience the sign, you'll be able to live a life that is blessed. And as Genesis 12 talks about, with the the promise and the covenant to Abram, then later Abraham, 
It's this idea that we have been blessed, that Abraham was blessed, but not so that he could keep it to himself. He was blessed to be a blessing to others. That we have been blessed, that we can live a blessed life, not because we want to keep all the money for ourselves in bigger barns, because Luke 12 shows us that that's not how to do things. But instead, if we have surplus, we can bless other people through an offering. If we have more and we give and tithe an offering, how much more can we as a church do to continue to see lives being changed here in San Diego County? That if we were to live a life that recognized that we fully trust God, people would look and say, okay, there's something different about them. They're blessed in a way that I cannot understand, so I want to find out more about that. And then we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, and that people would see the good deeds that our church does and not give our church glory, but they would give God, our Heavenly Father, glory instead. So let me, let me turn a corner here and, and get close to the end. We look at this idea from verse 10 from Malachi 3, test me in this. Test me in this. Now, this test is not about health and wealth. It's about trust and obedience. And remember, we talked about how the greater the intimacy, the greater the intentionality. So this church is very generous. And when there's a need, people respond in awesome ways. And that's amazing. And that's to be commended. But it also means that we can be, how could we potentially be more intentional with giving so that recognize that there's always going to be the need to have lights on and air conditioning on. There's always going to be a need to have different studies or to have uh, camps coming or VBS. There's always a need for people to find out about Jesus because that's the greatest need that the world has ever faced. The need to know who Jesus is and the life that he has for them through recognizing that we're sinners and that we need to be saved by grace through faith. There's always a need. And so we recognize that Here's, a, here's an encouragement for how we can go through this. Now, some of you, I recognize you're in, you're in between jobs or you're really having a hard time figuring out how am I going to tithe? I mean, I barely have enough money to, you know, make ends meet at this point. And I, I, I completely can imagine what that's like. I, I can fathom that. But it's one of those things where we still can give God a tenth of what we do have. Because remember, when we calculate the trust of trusting God with our money, it's almost more important that we calculate the trust of not trusting God with our money. And what would it look like if we try to hold on to every penny when God has more in store for us? But we look at this idea that maybe for you, you're looking at your, you, the first thing we do is look at whatever amount of money that you make, whether it's through a job or whether through it's your parents, whether it's just whatever money you make. What does a tithe look like? What does a tenth of that look like? And then looking at the budget at the end of the month is coming. What does it look like? And where are the areas in which I need to adjust in order to get that tithe amount and ability to have that 10% given to God off the top before anything else? That means maybe means cutting some things back. It may mean that we make adjustments. Um, for some of you, you say, I can't do that because I'm in, I'm in debt right now and I, I don't know how to pay all that back. Specifically talking about debt is where we're going to go next week, this idea of subtracting debt from our lives. So we're going to address that specifically next week. But what we want to do is maybe if you can't get to a tithe right away, but maybe what you do is you've not, you've not given it all with intentionality. And so we ask that you give 1% intentionality. Just start giving. Just take that first step. Maybe for some of you, you give a good amount, but it's, you know, maybe it's 4%. You say, okay, then I'm going to give 5%. I'm going to start growing slowly until we reach a tithe. Now, if you only give 10%. Does that mean that God doesn't love you if you don't? No. God loves you. And his love for you is not contingent on how much money we give. It's the fact that his son gave it all for us. And so 
It's not about that, but it's about this idea of going step by step, evaluating the finances and saying, how can I give a tenth to the church? And then when I start living that life of obedience and faith and on the other side of it, then I'll be able to give offerings above and beyond to God's kingdom. So I want to close with this illustration that uh, Shailen before at a previous house, we had uh, a stairwell. It was a two-story building. And we had about five stairs this way. And then it turned, and then you went up that way. So you can kind of picture how there's like a little bit, then a platform, and it goes up. So a couple of years ago, when we, we had the house, she would uh, want to do this thing where she would want me to catch her. Right? Like she would, she'd want to jump and then I would catch her. And so it's very fun for her. So she gets on the third stair. And at that point, she could just kind of like lean forward and I just catch her. Right? Like I don't need, she doesn't need to jump in the air. Then she goes to the fourth stair and she's like, okay, daddy, will you catch me? Like, yes, I will, I will catch you. Absolutely. You can trust me in this. And she jumps and I catch her. And then on the fifth stair, she gets ready. Now she's, she's a little nervous. Like, daddy, I'm nervous. Like, I'm a little worried about this. I'm like, I get it, honey, but you can trust me in this. Because think about me from, from this perspective. There is nothing in that moment in my life more important than catching my girl. It's not like I'm going to be able to say the fist. I'm like, okay, honey, test me in this. I'm ready. She jumps like, oh, I forgot to send an email earlier today. I just got to make sure I go send that out and let her fall. Or it's not going to be something where it's like, oh, you know what? I forgot to add something to my grocery list. Or, oh, there's something I need. There's someone I need to call. In that moment, when my daughter is stepping on the fifth stair and she's trying to exhibit faith and I say, trust me in this, or in this context, test me in this, there is nothing more important in my life than catching my girl. And if we were to have the same kind of faith that when we recognize that God is saying, listen, test me in this, trust me in this, that if you step up and it's going to hurt, it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult on the other side of obedience to have this faith, but while you are doing, test me in this, and we do so, there's nothing that's going to stop him from holding on to his promise. And he's going to catch you. And then what happens when my daughter does it for the first time? And she jumps, arms wide open. I catch her from the fifth stair. She has the exhilaration of being able to trust and know that her dad is going to catch her. What is the next word that comes out of her mouth? Again. And then she wants to do it, jump. And then she says, again. And then I say, no. No, I'm just kidding. But it's like, again. Because the thrill of knowing that when you trust someone and you test them and they respond in kind and you felt an exhilaration and a fear, but you received the safety of being caught and that promise is exhilarating. And we say again. So that when we step through faith, look at our budgets, figure out what a tenth looks like, figure out how to make this work, say no to some things so that we could say yes to greater things. When we do this and we live this way, it's like we're stepping on that fifth stair. I'm saying, God, will you, can I trust you? He says, yeah, test me in this, trust me in this. He'll catch us. And then when we receive that exhilaration, what's the next word that's going to come out of our mouths? Again, I'm going to trust you again. Because you showed up for me one time. That means I know you'll show up for me again and again and again. So every time we write our tithe check, this is our way of saying, again, God. When, I'm, when things get tight and we still try to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you in this. We sign our check. We put it into the offering plate. And then God shows up in a way we didn't foresee. We say, God, you did it again. For us as a church, if we all lived this way, if we all lived with this kind of trust of the five-stair faith that says, God says, test me in this, and we jumped, 
We wouldn't be filling the coffers of our church. We wouldn't just be making sure a bank account is bigger at the church. We would be banking on the statement that God is going to change lives in this area and beyond. That we would not just do it to fill up our coffers, but that so that we could be a church and continue to be a church that through generosity, through service, through the love of God, through preaching his word, through worshiping him, that people who are far from him would come into right relationship with him and that lives would be changed so that you're not doing this so that the preacher can have more money and have a better life according to finances. We're doing this so that people can have eternal life and their lives will be changed forever and ever. We give that five-star faith where we step at the end, five-star faith. We recognize that by dividing the best that is owed to God, by dividing the best from the rest, we put God to the test. And we live a life that is blessed. Because when we trust in him and he catches us, we'll keep saying again and again and again. And then a lifetime of agains in our lives can provide for a lifetime of eternal life for those who don't know Jesus quite yet. Because he can use our church continually to bring those far from God near to God. He can use us continually to be generous and to serve our community. He can use us continually so that people who are within this area would know who Jesus is. Because God's people at Palmer Auto Christian Church, though there was fear when it came to testing him in this, stood at the end of the stairs, jumped, were caught, and said, again. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, I pray that this message was received not with guilt, but with hope, with love, with encouragement, with recognizing that you've given so much already that some of us, maybe we stopped listening 20 minutes ago because we're just thinking, this, how can this happen? But Lord, I pray that you would make a way, that you would make a way when there was no way that we could foresee that you who divided the Red Sea so that your people could walk across, you could divide our finances in a way that gives us clarity of how to move forward in obedience to you and trust in you. Lord, I pray that you just um, work in an incredible way and encourage us to trust you with that five-stair faith of recognizing that by dividing the best from the rest, we put you to the test and live a life that is blessed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.